1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, yep. It's time for delicious holiday snacks. I know. Uh, for some people that celebrate Christmas or other winter holidays, the snacks are the best thing about the season. Uh, I think Tracy and I have told the ridiculous story of us being two of the only people in the office during Christmas holidays one year yep. and making s'mores with... um chocolate mousse peeps and peppermint bark and running around like we were wild animals it was amazing <laughs> because the sugar rush was more than we could handle
0: yeah and but it was
1: super fun
0: and even if you'd like don't celebrate the the religious holidays or even like the more cultural like the people who are more culturally christian and celebrate Chris- christmas in a more secular way like even if you don't do any of that a lot of these things is the only time of the year that you really find them
1: Yeah, uh, and yummy snacks are yummy snacks. Uh, But many of these snacks have histories that go back hundreds of years. But because of the nature of the subject, things get really confusing in a hurry, because after all, all of the historical evidence is pretty much eaten. Uh, And so there's a lot of apocrypha going on. Uh, And so in the interest of examining the stories behind some of the most ingested holiday consumables, we're going to sort through that apocrypha and the known facts, and we'll probably all be craving something sweet and delicious by the end. And uh, expectations management right out of the gate. We already talked about eggnog and its origins a bit in our eggnog riot episode, so we're not going to talk about eggnog today. We do have another drink, uh, which is wassail, and we'll also cover candy
0: canes and gingerbread. I'm excited because (laughs) uh, a lot of these things are delicious. So candy canes, bright and cheerful sticks of peppermint goodness, but. Uh, no one really knows exactly where they came from. There are a lot of unsubstantiated stories about their origins though, and three of them are the ones that are the most commonly repeated.
1: So one version of this story goes that candy canes were originally invented in Germany in the 1600s. And in this apocryphal version, a choir master at a cathedral invented candy canes as a way to keep children, who are normally a little bit fidgety and sometimes noisy, occupied and quiet in church and he had the candy sticks made by a confectioner with a crook at the top so that they echoed the shape of a shepherd's staff, making the idea of candy in church more acceptable to parents. Sometimes this story is told along with color symbolism, that the choir master specifically chose white sticks of candy to represent purity and Christ, but there is absolutely no record of such a thing, and no one seems to know who this choirmaster was, even though there are an awful lot of details about his thought process. <laughs> So, uh again, it's a lovely story, but unsubstantiated. I'll
0: say I would have much preferred candy as a way to keep quiet in church than what I actually had, which was doodling on the church bulletin.
1: <laughs> uh, church bulletins are generally not delicious. No, no. shade to any church bulletins. But
0: <laughs> no, but I would draw on them. So another origin story attributes the invention of the candy cane to a particularly devout confectioner in the United States, specifically Indiana, who carefully designed the candy cane as an expression of the story of Christ. And this similarly cites the white of the candy cane as a symbol of purity, and the red stripes as symbolic of the blood of Christ at the crucifixion, and then the cane shape, according to this version, is actually the letter J for Jesus, uh, again, there's no evidence for this story uh that's that's similar to like the one that I heard the most growing up, although I heard the the combination of the colors being this one, and then the crook is the shepherd's crook,
1: yeah, and it's one of those things like if people like to think of them that way, that's great, but like there's not really any historical backing for that being how and why they were invented. Um, a third story is less about the invention of the peppermint treat and is more about the introduction of it to the US. And this tale features a German immigrant named August Imgard. And according to the legend, Imgard p- put up the Christmas tree, uh, the first in Ohio when he decorated his in 1847. And it's said that Imgard's tree had paper ornaments and candy canes on it. At least that is how some versions of the story go. There are other accounts that say that it was actually a type of decorated Bavarian cookie that was used to grace the tree along with the paper ornaments, as well as nuts that were painted gold. Imgard does remain associated with one of the earliest Christmas trees in the U.S., although I think he is no longer referenced as the first Christmas tree in the U.S. But the candy cane aspect of the story in terms of him bringing it to the United States and decorating with it is, again, not substantiated in any way.
0: As for the striped peppermint sticks themselves, they're clearly described in the 1844 book The Complete Confectioner, Pastry Cook, and Baker by Eleanor Parkinson. In a section of the text titled Clove, Ginger, or Peppermint Candy, the process of making striped candy is described this way. For clove, the mixture, whilst boiling, is colored with cochineal. Ginger with saffron, but the peppermint must be kept perfectly white except the stripes, which is done by cutting off as many pieces from the bulk as you have colors, which should be in powder. Put a sufficiency in each piece to give the desired tint and keep them warm. When the remaining portion of the sugar is pulled, lay them over the surface in narrow stripes, double the roll together, and the face each way will be alike. Pull them out into long sticks and twist them Make them round by rolling them under the hand, or they may be cut into small pieces with a pair of shears or scissors.
1: Yeah, so in terms of that, it's more a matter of put in stripes to make them colorful and festive, not so much with any kind of meaning. Uh, And while we may not be able to trace the invention of candy canes back to its origin point, we do know a bit more about the mass production of candy canes and where that started. Bob's Candies, founded by a man named Bob McCormick in Albany, Georgia, was the first confectionery company to start mass-producing candy canes, which they did in the early 1920s. Incidentally, Bob's Candies was also the first to offer cellophane-wrapped candy canes. Tracy, I don't know about you, but I accidentally ingested a lot of cellophane as a child because I could not always peel it off the candy cane. (laughs) uh initially the hooks that were being added to the canes were done by hand before the candy cooled and hardened but this method had a high rate of waste because more than one-fifth of the candy canes broke and consequently
0: could not be sold bob mccormick's brother-in-law a priest by the name of gregory harding keller invented a machine to automate the hook shaping process which had a much lower rate of candy breakage the Keller machine, not to be confused with the one on Doctor Who, was further refined by two Bob's Candies employees named Dick Driscoll and Jimmy Spratling. And then after that, almost all the candy canes produced were perfect. This novel invention, which was really the start of the modern candy cane industry, won Keller his 15 minutes of fame. He even appeared on the game show What's My Line so contestants could guess his profession.
1: Yeah, I would imagine that was a stumper. Most priests do not also invent machinery for the confectionery trade. (laughs) Um, There is a great picture of him that I found online, and he's in his full, like, you know, priest collar and everything, standing next to this machine, and it's very charming. Next up, we are going to talk about a winter beverage that's been having a bit of a resurgence in popularity in recent years, and that is Wassel. But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at HowLifeUnfolds.com slash When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all Okay, so if you're like me uh, for a long time, maybe you aren't sure if you've ever had wassail before. Odds are yes, because there are a lot of different versions of it. Like there's no one, this is what equals true wassail. So probably something you have had could f- fall into the the very loose definition. Uh, and also there's a bit of confusion about whether wassail is a thing you drink or a thing you do. And it's actually both. And we'll get into that. It's a word that has pretty soft edges around its definition.
0: Of course, there's also a wassail song, which I'm not going to sing to you because no one needs to be subjected to that. Uh, you might have heard it with the reference to Wassel substituted out with another term. So it's the one that goes, here we come a wassailing among the leaves so green. Here we come a wandering so fair to be seen. Love and joy come to you and to you, you wassail too. And God bless you and send you a happy new year. So sometimes a wasling is swapped out for a caroling. And instead of, to you, your wassel, it's uh, something along the lines of glad Christmas or a merry Christmas.
1: Yeah, the um, the really popular version in the United States that was recorded by Perry Como definitely subs out wassailing for uh, a caroling and glad Christmas. And there have been other recordings as well that do the same. I'm not sure if that was because they didn't want any reference to alcohol or if it was because they thought people might not know what wassailing was. But in any case... Uh, It gets subbed out, but you know the song, even if you don't think you do.
0: It always makes me think of the version of Little Women starring Winona Ryder. (laughs)
1: Uh, And one of the earliest mentions of Wassel as a form of toasting and well-wishing is found in the old English epic Beowulf, most likely penned somewhere sometime between the 8th and 10th century. Its exact date is unknown. And the word is evolved from the greeting Veshael in Old Norse and its Old English counterpart, Veshael, both of which convey a wish to someone for their good health or good fortune. But aside from a fairly clear connection to root words, uh, the path of the Wassel tradition through time is a very winding one with many branches.
0: According to Robert Doors, writing for the Colonial Williamsburg Journal, it was England's Danish-speaking community that started using it as a toast. But it caught on so quickly throughout the country that by the time William, the Duke of Normandy, brought the Norman French army to the Battle of Hastings in 1066, which I have an episode about in the archive, uh, the invaders believed that it was an English custom.
1: Yeah, so even though it probably did not originate with um natives of England, they adopted it so quickly that it's now very much associated with England. And one of the more specific origin stories of the wassail toast is the tale of Vortigern and Rowena. Vortigern, a 5th century British king, was allegedly struck with Rowena's beauty, and when she approached him and uttered the greeting, Wassal, he, after conferring with an interpreter, answered, Drink, hall. And then the two shared a drink of spiced wine, which would have been a luxury item. Uh, And while this story is unverifiable, and it has taken on many variations throughout time, uh, including versions that happened later where they were sharing a cup with a whole group of people. And there was also a play, which was allegedly written by Shakespeare, but was eventually revealed as a forgery, Uh, This exchange of greetings continues into modern time, although now it is not linked to romance, as the original story was, but merely to revelry and merriment, like as a call in response to people to start sort of a drinking party.
0: By the 13th century, this idea of a communal drinking vessel filled with wassail had become popular. Uh, This was a bowl of the drink, which you would dip baked goods into to like soak up the wassail. And this is allegedly where the use of the word toast comes from to mean a greeting before a group drinks together, uh, because pieces of toast were sometimes dipped or floated in the wassail bowl. So wet alcoholic toast. I'm just (laughs) putting that out there. Uh, the Wassel
1: Bowl became part of a roving street party practice in the 1500s. So revelers, also called Wasselers, would visit homes sort of similar to the way that carolers might,
0: offering drinks and well wishes. In some locations, wassailing was part of the pagan winter solstice festival Saturnalia. Dressing in disguise or inverting social roles was part of this practice, and it became a time when the wealthy would share their bounty with people who had less financial fortune. Although there were also accounts that suggest the sharing had been demanded by drunken mobs rather than being offered magnanimously.
1: Yeah, so some, you know, versions of this were a case where people would pass this wassail bowl around, maybe get a little bit of liquid courage and then go to the rich guy's house and demand that he share his wealth with them. Or it was, you know, uh feudal lords would then kind of have the people under them come to their house and go, hey, you should share with us. That is a very, very watered-down version of it. Um, The pagan wassail tradition was also part of farming life in Britain. Farmers would drink to the health of their animals and their orchards, and they would leave wassail-soaked bread in trees or just pour the wassel directly onto tree trunks. And this could also involve groups of farmers and their families moving from one farm to another throughout the course of an evening to wish prosperity on the crops of everyone in the community.
0: So obviously, all of these various iterations of wassailing also evolved to coincide with the different beliefs and celebrations in different areas. While there were pagan roots to some of the farm practices, which included the desire to ward off bad spirits from orchards, as part of Christian holidays, wassailing became part of Twelfth Night festivities, and in more relaxed definitions of wassailing, the word has been used in a modern way to refer to almost any instance of in winter where neighbors visit each other and bring some sort of wassail or other libation to enjoy together.
1: Yeah, like I said, it's got very soft edges on the definition of this word. Uh, And all of this drinking around the holidays, we should point out, was not uh, always looked upon as good cheer. So in both England and the North American colonies, where the wassailing tradition had moved along with the colonists, 17th century Puritan church leaders were not enthused with the practice of drinking to celebrate a Christian holiday. And the crossover with Saturnalia on the calendar further wrangled them, Uh, There were, in fact, attempts to banish wassail and wassailing and many other Christmas activities completely.
0: While the practice and the beverage survived and they were romanticized in 19th century literature as part of a traditional English Christmas celebration, carrying a giant bowl of punch door-to-door is maybe a little too cumbersome to remain a popular practice.
1: Yeah, there are still places where people do it and, and villages... Uh, and towns where it is a big part of the tradition, but it's really not as common as it would have been several hundred years ago. Um, and we mentioned earlier that if the story of Rowena and Vortigern were true, the wine, spiced with ingredients that would have been imported, would have been highly valuable. But while that drink was merely present, according to the lore, at the moment when the idea of wassling was born, and would not have been called Wassel itself, there are plenty of other drinks that have been called Wassel through the ages. So... Some were made with uh, more affordable spiced ale rather than wine. Some replicated that more expensive wine with spices. Some have been made by whipping beer or ale into a froth and then dropping roasted
0: crab apples into the foam. There are a lot of versions. And then, of course, considering the orchard-focused traditions of wassailing in more rural areas, it's really no surprise that most modern wassail recipes are really apple-centric. If you search online, you'll find that most start with apple cider and then add some combo of other fruit juices, including orange, pineapple, and even cranberry. The whole cider-fruit juice mixture is cooked with spices like nutmeg, cloves, allspice, and ginger, and some include eggs, The drink is served hot, often with a fruit garnish or a piece of fruit stewed in the beverage as it's simmered. And then alcoholic wassail recipes can start with cider and spices combined with sherry, brandy, rum, mulled wine, and so on.
1: I feel like I should confess that this is not my thing.
0: (laughs) It's fine.
1: Not at all. I feel like a bad celebrant, but I'm like, please don't hand me hot sugar water.
0: (laughs) Well, I... I am fond of like a hot mulled cider, um, with like lots of cinnamon and and whatnot. Uh, I am not fond fond of the idea of communally drinking from the same bowl with <laughs> maybe strangers. That's true.
1: That's another thing that I didn't mention in in these notes that there is also like a hygiene element that may have made this lose a little bit of favor over the years. Um. yeah, to me, I mean, I have that thing where it was somewhere along the line ingrained in me that apple cider served warm is very dangerous as a potential haven of bacteria. And my brain cannot get past that possibility, even if someone shows me all of the ways they have maintained safety and yeah. food, food standards throughout prep and serving. I'm still like, all I see is auger. Yeah, well...
0: <laughs> As a person who worked in food safety for part of my career, like it is true that um, that like fresh pressed apple ciders and stuff, if they're not pasteurized, c- can be dangerous. Um, my my dad kind of got around this. Uh, often the um, the apple cider would be way too hot to put it in your mouth when you put it into the cup. Like you needed to give right. it a little time. So had
1: there been anything in it, it was dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm more of an eggnog drinker than a a wassail drinker, but cheers to anyone who likes their wassail. I do love eggnog. Yeah, me too. Uh, We are going to move on to some more sober but very delicious baked goods. We'll talk all about gingerbread right after we first pause for a little sponsor break. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at HowLifeUnfolds.com slash Papertarian. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. is closely associated with Christmas celebrations, but its history is truly international and it is not tied in its origins to any holiday. Uh, Gingerbread has been popular in some form or another, we'll talk about its many forms, for hundreds of years. There is even a reference to it in Shakespeare's Love's Labor's Lost because it was so wildly popular already by the 16th century.
0: The earliest known existence of gingerbread is all the way back in ancient Greece, around 2400 BCE, where it was used in ceremonies. Ancient Egyptians also used some form of baked ginger spice food in ritual customs. The earliest known instance of an Asian baked good cooked with ginger is from China in the 10th century.
1: Yeah, uh, Asian countries were using ginger in all kinds of other ways, but this is specifically to baked goods. Um, And we know gingerbread was in Europe by the 11th century, possibly, almost entirely likely, brought back from the Crusades. And for the remainder of the medieval period, gingerbread's popularity grew and it spread throughout Europe, and it actually became a staple at festivals. But through this early period, while words that equated roughly to gingerbread were being used in various languages it did not really refer to what we call gingerbread today. And there really was not a consistent meaning for it at all then. So sometimes it would simply be referred to preserved ginger that was edible.
0: Early versions of gingerbread as a baked item in Europe included ginger, of course, but also ground almonds, stale breadcrumbs, rosewater, and sugar. And then this made a paste that could be pressed into molds before baking, and the dense mixture retained the shape of those molds really well.
1: And as gingerbread's popularity grew, so did the variety of shapes that it was baked in. And the level of detail that was used in the molds also got a lot more intense. Uh, And it wasn't long before animals and flora were crafted from gingerbread. Soon, this baked treat became a way to mark current events and theme the gingerbread to specific celebrations.
0: By the 15th century, though, the various translations of the word gingerbread all started to refer to some sort of ginger cake with varying degrees of denseness along the spectrum between spongy cake and hard cookie. Even today, the term gingerbread can refer to a cake or a cookie, and recipes really vary pretty greatly. You've probably had thin, crisp ginger cookies, thick, bready cookies, and everything in between, with bakers experimenting and regional ingredient differences that have led to a huge wealth of different kinds of gingerbread.
1: And over time, of course, the recipe shifted. By the 16th century, flour was used instead of breadcrumbs and eggs and other sweet spices were incorporated. And it was actually during the 16th century that the first gingerbread man was allegedly baked. So according to accounts, Queen Elizabeth I had miniature gingerbread replicas of prominent guests baked. And so when they arrived at court, visitors were presented with their tiny, tasty doppelgangers.
0: That might creep me out a little bit. They were apparently
1: delighted. okay like good. it was it was a cute little thing, not something spooky.
0: I'm just imagining like a, a very meticulous, uncanny valley kind of gingerbread representation of myself given to me <laughs> to eat. That might be weird. So gingerbread had also become a token of luck was sometimes given to knights by ladies wishing them well in tournaments. Hard gingerbread was also crumbled and used as a topping on other foods, not for luck, but to hide the scent of items that had maybe lost their freshness.
1: Ginger to the rescue again. Uh Yeah, they're allegedly meat that was maybe starting to turn would sometimes be treated in this way to cover its smell. Uh, An additional gingerbread lore started to crop up, so some believed that if a maiden ate a gingerbread man intended to represent a husband, that it would put sort of cosmic forces of luck in motion to bring her a marriage.
0: Ginger is also well known as a stomach settler, so it's not surprising that by the 1500s, gingerbread was also being touted for its ability to soothe your tummy. Henry VIII is said to have hoped that ginger baked goods would stave off illnesses.
1: I mean, I have to wonder if that's just a case of like, this is delicious. It's medicinal.
0: <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think there is there is some uh, definite suggestion that chewing candied ginger can help if you have motion sickness. Oh, for sure. I'm literally
1: meaning Henry VIII going, gingerbread cures all. Oh, for
0: sure. <laughs> that Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, gingerbread became so beloved in England that entire fairs popped up just to celebrate it. So it had been sort of a, uh, a food that was served at other fairs and festivals, but eventually there were literal gingerbread festivals. And the gingerbread morsels that were served at these events got the nicknames fairings.
0: For the wealthy, gingerbread was even decorated with gold leaf and the idea of gingerbread became associated with finely detailed design and luxury.
1: Yeah, even today, sometimes uh, you will hear of houses being built with um, gingerbread-style details, and usually that means very sort of meticulous, slightly... Uh, you know, I want to say fussy and that can have a negative connotation, but that's not my intent. Just with a lot of, you know, kind of ornate work on them, that is still used as a, a reference. And in the U.S., gingerbread is a tradition as old as the colonies themselves. George Washington's mother's gingerbread recipe is still shared and baked. Our previous guest that was on the podcast, Ann Byrne, included it in her book, American Cakes. And after the colonies gained independence from Great Britain, gingerbread baked into the shape of an Eagle actually became popular. And some American politicians over the years even took gingerbread on the road to share with prospective voters in an effort to gain favor.
0: Gingerbread cookies in German traditions took on a role that was similar to that of conversation hearts traded in uh, the U.S. around Valentine's Day. Lebkuchen, as these cookies are called, are often heart-shaped with little sweet-nothings-style messages written on them in icing.
1: In cities throughout Germany, as well as Poland, Russia, Hungary, the Czech Republic, and France, uh, gingerbread became so revered and so vital to regional culture that gingerbread guilds were established. And in some European cities, antique gingerbread molds are still on display in museums. Uh, they will occasionally also press, like, beeswax into them to make limited edition ornaments that are super duper popular.
0: Germany is also the home of the first gingerbread house, often said to have been inspired by the Candy House in the Grimm's fairy tale Hansel and Gretel. That story was originally published in 1812 as part of the book Grimm's, Ta- Grimm's Fairy Tales. And there may also have been gingerbread houses even before that, as far back as the 16th century, uh, but the Brothers Grimm's writing made the cookie domiciles more popular.
1: Yeah, they really exploded uh, in terms of their popularity after that came out. So from Germany, the tradition of creating feats of confectionery architecture spread, uh, although it never really caught on in Europe in sort of like the widespread way that it did in the United States, where gingerbread houses are really popular now.
0: Today, gingerbread houses are so popular that there's ongoing international competition to build massive ones that are as large as real houses. The current record holder is a house built in 2013 in Bryan, Texas, by a group called Traditions Club. And then that house is 60 by 42 feet, which is 18.3 by 12.8 meters, had more than 2,000 square feet of interior space. Visitors could pay to have a visit with Santa Claus at the house, and with all the proceeds going toward a new trauma center at St. Joseph's Hospital. That is a lot of gingerbread. It's a whole lot of gingerbread. Uh, on a much smaller scale, prior podcast subject, the Grove Park Inn has a, a, a gingerbread house competition every year, but they're little ones, little incredibly ornate ones.
1: Yeah, the um, we have talked about uh Disney a couple times and Disney's haunted mansions. If any of our guests are in Disney World around the holidays. One of the coolest things you can do is spend a day not going into any of the parks in Disney World but going from hotel to hotel because they all have their own special gingerbread house display. Um, and some of them are amazing. And I love like the Polynesian usually has like a really cute little Hawaiian style one that is sort of goofy and sweet. But uh if you are in Anaheim at Disneyland during the holidays and you go see the um, Haunted Mansion holiday where they do the Nightmare Before Christmas overlay, usually in the ball Room, there is like an astonishing feat of gingerbread physics going on. Um, and it just smells amazing in there, and it's really lovely. Who doesn't love gingerbread? Yeah, it's so good. (laughs) Uh, I would make, I think we should start making gingerbread year round. And I also, if you have not had a gingerbread cake versus the cookies, I highly recommend it because some of those are really delicious.
0: Yum. Do you have listener mail? I do!
1: It's not related to food, but it does mention potato starch. Uh, this is from our listener, Gretchen. Uh, and she says, hi, guys. I'm a book conservator uh, working in collection care, and I loved your recent podcast on the Lumiere Brothers. I listen to podcasts all day while I work, and yours is one of my favorites. I especially enjoyed this most recent one as it brought me back to when I was studying to become a conservator, and we did a whole week on identifying photographic processes, which is where I first encountered autochrome plates. You're right. They're absolutely stunning. And I love studying them because they're very easy to identify. Under a microscope, you can see all the little dyed areas and they look like miniature stained glass windows. Perhaps the stained glass manufacturers should have been the nervous ones. Uh, Gretchen, in case you did not hear that episode, is referring to um, the fact that there was some concern when color photography first began and autochromes in particular that that painters would be put out of work. Uh, the instructor, she goes on to say, failed to mention the fascinating story behind their eventual creation, though, so thank you for enlightening me further. And the archive you visited? referring to Tracy's story, was very right. Keep those old photos cold. Another film photography fun fact, early acetate films are kept very cold to prevent them developing what's called vinegar syndrome, which occurs as acetate plastic degrades and creates acetic acid, which in addition to causing further degradation also makes everything smell like vinegar. Early nitrate films are kept very cold so they don't combust. Thank you again. Already looking forward to the next episode. Um, Thank you so much, Gretchen. That's cool. I would love to look at one of these potato starch color photo plates under a microscope, I think that would be mind-blowing. Um like magical kaleidoscopic wonder if you would like to write to us you can do so at history podcast at howstuffworks.com we are also uh across the spectrum of social media as missed in history and Mist in is also our website where you can come and find an archive of every episode that's ever existed plus show notes for any of the shows that tracy and i have worked on together so come and visit us at Mist in and uh we'll study history together
0: So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play Stores today. All you can stream with Zumo
1: Play. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut,